Hey, this is Carolyn Glick. Welcome to another episode of the Carolyn Glick Mideast News Hour. I'm joined this week by my very close friend and, and colleague, David Wormser from the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C. Hi, David. How are you, Carolyn? I'm good. It's so glad. I'm so glad to have you on the show. I asked David to be on the show uh, because a lot of because we're going to be talking about two uh, main issues this week, two really rather large issues this week. Uh, one is what's happening with Israel and the United States vis-a-vis Iran and its race to the nuclear finish line. Um, and uh, where we are today really marks a destruction of the central framing concept of Israeli uh, strategic thinking for about 50 years. So we're going to talk about that not minor issue at all and uh, what that means going forward, both vis-a-vis Iran and vis-a-vis Israel. And then we're going to move, we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about another development, which is um, uh, the Israeli government's willingness to cooperate with and legitimize um, Peter Beinart, who's one of the primary American Jewish fig leaves for uh, anti-Semites on the left. So both of these issues, I think it's important to talk about with David because um, David is one of the, uh, he served in uh, many senior positions in uh, the national security uh, community in the Bush administration, in both the State Department and at the White House at the National Security Council. And um, he's thought a lot and written a lot about uh, Israel's uh, strategic uh, ties with the United States and specifically the military ties. And um and he's also uh, working on a book right now about um, about uh, progressive Judaism in the United States. And we're sort of working on uh, parallel tracks on the same subject. So it's always great to talk to David. And today, I think it's particularly important. So thank you again for being on the show. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure and an honor, Carolyn. It's a pleasure and an honor. Uh, well, so let me just cut to the chase first so that we can get the Iran uh, started. So. Tuesday, Israel Ayom, uh, Israel's uh, widest circulation daily, had a red a red uh, headline on page one, said, um, maybe I can find it here because I wrote about it in my article that, for the paper that's going to be coming out on Friday, which is tomorrow, um, where it says here, see the top headline, and I don't expect you to read the Hebrew, don't worry, but it wow. says here, it says here in Jerusalem, they're frustrated. The United States is passive in relation to Iran. It's the top headline in the paper. And the news story itself by Israel Hayom's military correspondent, Yoav Moore, had two pretty startling uh, pieces of information. First of all, he said that while Israel and the United States uh, agree about where Iran stands vis-a-vis nuclear breakout capacity, that is the independent capacity to build nuclear weapons at will, essentially. And uh, and uh, and so both of them agree to where Iran is generally, but they have no agreement about what to do about it. So Israel says uh, that the United States has to pressure Iran to stop its nuclear enrichment. Iran is breaching every aspect of the, of the 2015 nuclear accord. You're supposed to only be able to uh, enrich limited amounts of uranium to 3.67% Enrichment. They're uh, enriching massive quantities of uranium, uranium to sixty uh, percent enrichment, which is just a stone throw away from weapons grade. Uh, so um, uh, Israel is saying, pressure them, uh, stiffen the economic sanctions, 
um, uh, apply diplomatic pressure, and finally uh, put the military option on the table, at least rhetorically. And to this uh, uh, report, again, to, according to this report, the United States says, no, uh, military option is not on the table and we're not willing to discuss it. As for economic sanctions, the United States is turning a blind eye to massive exports of oil and gas on the part of Iran in breach of US economic sanctions to China, to Turkey and to other countries. Uh, former US ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, just wrote an article about it in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago. Um, and so they're not going to do anything about that. They're enabling Iran to transfer oil to Lebanon uh, through Syria. Uh, they're working with Jordan to enable Iran to transport energy through Jordan to Syria to Lebanon and, uh, and so on and so forth. So the United States is not going to put any additional economic sanctions on Iran. And as for diplomatic pressure, so we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that, but only uh, if you, Israel, make concessions to the Palestinians and in the background all the time is the U.S. intention to open a, a, a consulate for the Palestinians in the heart of Jerusalem, Israel's capital, thus uh, effectively uh, uh, erasing U.S. recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, uh, one of the most important acts that uh, President Trump took uh, during his presidency in 2018. So, um, this is where the United States and Israel are. The United States says no, Israel says move, and Israel uh, is stuck, basically, uh, with very few options to deal with Iran's nuclear uh, program. So what the article went on to say is that Israel is trying to deal with this situation by going along with the Americans. So the American policy essentially allows Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. Sooner or later, it doesn't even really matter. It just assures them that they will receive a nuclear arsenal really you know, in the foreseeable future. And, uh, and so Israel is saying, okay, well, we wanna coordinate our policies with the United States. We don't wanna abandon the United States in any way we don't have anything to do. So uh, the new policy of the government is to say, okay, we support going back to the JCPOA, to the 2015 nuclear uh, uh, agreement. And that nuclear agreement gives Iran a glide path to a nuclear arsenal at the latest by 2025. So Israel says, fine. Why? Because they say, well, maybe if Iran goes back to this, then they're going to constrain their nuclear operations to what is permitted under the 2015 deal. That is, they're going to stop enriching uranium to 60% enrichment, go back to 3.67, and they won't stockpile as much enriched uranium, uh, which is really... Um, I mean, we can get into how, how how wise that is, but on the face of it, it's completely absurd uh, to say that they should go back to abiding by an agreement that gives them a nuclear weapon in order to prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon. Um, and then the other thing is, is that the reason why the Israel's position is now to support the U.S. effort to return uh, Iran to compliance with the 2015 deal is because Israel wants to buy time. It wants to buy time to do what? to uh, launch a diplomatic campaign against Iran's nuclear program and to develop a military option for attacking Iran's nuclear installations. So two things here uh, that are important. One is that effectively Israel is saying, well, we're gonna legitimize the nuclear program by agreeing to a return to a deal that legitimizes Iran's nuclear program. Um, so then after they've done that, they're saying that they're going to go into the international community and ask for help uh, to oppose the deal that they, that legitimizes the nuclear program that they now are campaigning against. So that's difficult. 
And the other thing that we learned from that is that in 20 years of warning and, uh, and planning and trying to constrain through various means, economic, diplomatic, uh, so, um, sabotage Iran's nuclear efforts, Israel still doesn't have a military plan or capability apparently to actually destroy sufficient numbers of Iranian nuclear installations to significantly set back the clock on their nuclear bomb program. So both of these things are pretty amazing. And they speak to where Israel is and also to where the United States is, these two countries that are allies uh, on this very, very critical issue. And so I want to open up to you, David, uh, and talk about, you know, when I tell you this story, which I understand has not been reported, uh, it sort of just fell like a thud, even though it's an earthquake. Um, what is your response? What does this tell you about uh, of the fight, first of all, uh, to prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons? I'm not surprised one iota about the American position. I'm a little surprised about the Israeli position. Uh, the American position, you know, back in 2006, seven, when I was still in the administration, the Bush administration, I remember uh, talking to an Israeli diplomat and uh, he was telling me how they want to coordinate possible responses to Iran's nuclear program and so forth. And I looked at him and I told him, you know, you got to understand this administration and this administration at that time was the George Bush administration is not going to do anything. The cavalry will not come. Uh, you're on your own. Uh, if, if, if it has to be kinetic to stop the program, then you're on your own, number one. And number two, diplomacy won't work. So, i.e., you're on your own. If it was true under George W. Bush, it's even more true under Obama and even more true under Biden. The Americans will not stop Iran's nuclear program physically. Well, why is that? You know, that think, was always a thing that 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 got, you know, I always said, why is it? And I have a theory about it, but I'd first like I to understand the, your response. I think it's the complete collapse of the arms control paradigm in the United States that has governed Washington foreign policy life since the early 60s. The idea that you can effectively negotiate through uh, this theoretical, quote, rational actor model, a set of incentives that comes to terms with a foreign government's nuclear program or any sort of arms program you have a problem with, and that their interests in international security will eventually moderate the regime. So it becomes a vehicle for eventually coming to terms with the regime and changing the character of it into a uh, a responsible international actor. This has been the guiding principle of American foreign policy since the early 60s. And that has collapsed here too. It, and frankly, it collapsed a number of times before. The whole Was it ever right? Process. Was it ever borne out? No, it was never right because it never took seriously the ideological objectives of the enemy. The Soviets never moderated, they collapsed. They couldn't moderate. There was, there was a point at which moderation gets to the core of their control of, of power. And they always pulled back. And when they didn't, in 1989, they collapsed. So I think it's, it's part of this overall 
uh, uh, denial that when people say they hate you and say they will bury you and say that history will put you in the dustbin, act on it, build weapons to do it, we continuously ignore that and think, well, they can't really believe that. They don't really believe that. And if they believe that, then, oh, my God, the consequences are so, so radical that we can't we can't want to contemplate that. So essentially, because what Iran has been saying has been very clear, it never hid what its objectives were. Uh, it's built the means to do so. And, and contrary to what some of the administration people in the previous uh, Obama administration said, or this administration, the JCPOA did not halt their program at all. Neither did any of the diplomatic agreements the Europeans had in the 2000s. Uh, Iran never stops its nuclear program. It reaches points of plateau where it needs to sit and pause on the more overt side and do work behind the scenes. Like you, you run ref, uh, centrifuges and they don't work. You got to stop running centrifuges. You got to figure out what's wrong. Well, at that point, they'll agree to a centrifuge freeze. Or, or running of centrifuge freezes. It fits with the natural pace of their program all along. They never really stop. So all well, what about the claim? I mean, there's a contention right now that's being made in Israel against uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, that says that by campaigning against the JCPOA and convincing the Trump administration, President Trump, to vacate uh, America's uh, acquiescence to the agreement and to instead apply uh, a strategy of maximum pressure on Iran, that actually that was that was that was a thing that changed the situation for the worse. That Iran used America's abandonment of the JCPOA to massively expand its enrichment. That they weren't doing that much. True, they were breaches here and there, but it wasn't the sort of industrial level breach that we're now seeing where they're openly enriching uranium to 60% and uh, there are no no significant inspections and there are no limitations in their stockpiling. Well, if they were capable of doing that uh, when the JCPOA was signed, then why didn't they do it? I mean, essentially what you're seeing here is the fruition of all the work they've put into their nuclear program when they ostensibly were halting it. So, so I think what you're seeing is evidence of the fraud that the JCPOA was all along. They got to a point of being able not only to enrich to 60 and frankly to nine, they can enrich to bomb grade now. They didn't just get to that point, which they were not doing then and maybe not even capable of doing then, but they're able to do it with advanced generation centrifuges in large numbers, which means their breakout capacity goes from a year or two or three down to a few months or even weeks. This was not a capability they had when the JCPOA was signed, which means they built their capacity under the JCPOA. And, and uh, that, that's exactly the indictment of the JCPOA that Prime Minister Netanyahu said. I mean, it was one of the indictments. Uh, and I think we see the proof of it. The second thing is we haven't even seen the hidden side. The hidden side being weaponization activities, miniaturization, coordination with North Korea, the missile developments that that allow these things to happen and so on and so forth. So across the board, again, my my feeling has always been, and we have a lot of proof of this in previous agreements, the Iranians never stopped their program. They simply figure out diplomatically what, from a scientific point of view, they they would have some advantage in halting it for a moment while they scientifically advance 
And then when they're ready to move ahead scientifically, then they just jettison the agreement. We had a very serious agreement with the Iranians under the Bush administration called the Paris Accords in 2004, five, I think it was. And this was, remember, on the wake of the Iraq war, when it was quite credible that the United States could go into Iran. And we had serious warnings to them about the use of force. And yet, nevertheless, once they scientifically moved ahead on their centrifuges, they just walked right through the Paris Accords and started spinning their centrifuges. And what it was very clearly, this was a pause they needed to scientifically advance, and it was a free concession. They were anyway going to pause, whether or not there was an agreement. So I think that's how you have to look at the JCPOA. Nothing ever stopped. And what you see now- Okay, let now, me just stop you for a second. Is this an intelligence failure on the part of the United States, or is this a failure of- a conceptual failure that they, that it doesn't fit into the box and therefore they disregarded the information? Well, my answer to both is yes. I mean, <laughs> what it is, is an intelligence failure because the intelligence communities in the United States being politicized as they are, uh, have essentially generated intelligence reports that minimize Iran's uh, intent to break out and intent to a bomb. Uh, they don't deny the physical activity that goes on. They simply remove it from the context of a relentless program to a bomb. They would say stuff like, well, they want to be like Israel, one screwdriver away. They want to be they want to have the capability, but not the but not actually the bomb. Uh, they et cetera, et cetera. They, they come up with all these analyses that have no basis in any real facts or intelligence. So, this really brings us to Israel, right? Because right. Israel's watching all of this. It, you yeah. had the national intelligence estimate that came out at the end of the Bush administration. I think it was in yeah. November 2007 that said that said Iran, they don't have a nuclear weapons program. No, they abandoned that in 2003 and we have nothing to worry about. And that basically put the kibosh on the on the whole concept of America doing anything useful uh, to prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. And you had Obama came in and, you know, from the outset during the 2008 uh, campaign, he said he wanted to talk to Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who had just called for Israel to be wiped off the map. And then he began these uh, surreptitious uh, uh, negotiations with the Iranians through Oman, and Israel discovered them. So here you have Israel's security brass in 2010, ordered by Prime Minister Netanyahu and Defense Minister Ehud Barak to prepare plans to attack Iran's nuclear installations, and they refused the order. That was Mossad Director Mayor Dagan and General Staff uh, Chief uh, Gabi Ashkenazi at the time. Um, and they refused to do so. And the, and and not only that, Mayor Dagan said in a in a in an interview shortly before his death that he acknowledged that not only did he refuse the order, but that he uh, exposed Israel's plans or 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 the plans that uh, that he had foiled to Leon Panetta, who was then the CIA chief. And you know this the the concept was that this is an American problem. This isn't an Israeli problem. And Israel has gone on to the point where 11 years later, in 2021, the Biden administration says, we don't care about this. We're not going to do anything about this. And uh, we'll only pay lip service to the problem if you cough up Jerusalem or whatever else in Judea and Samaria to the PLO and Hamas. So um, 
what was Israel? How do you analyze the Israeli security brass and their refusal, even at political direction by 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 the uh, by the prime minister and the defense minister of Israel, uh, to do anything active uh, to you know aside from very important sabotage operations inside of Iran, inside of the nuclear installations and uh, 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 assassination of Iranian nuclear scientists, but actually you know, uh, put the pedal to the metal and take down uh, Boucher or Isfahan or Nantaz. Um, how do you explain that? Well, I mean, first of all, there's the obvious civil military relations question that the brass, the, the uh, military brass acted undemocratically. They can talk about values and the pursuit of democratic values in Israel and so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is the elected leadership of Israel manifests the will of the Israeli people. That is the essence of democracy. And when you don't take orders from the uh, and you sabotage and you work to sabotage the will of the elected strata of Israeli public life, you are acting in an anti-democratic way. And it exposed it that they, they felt that they were more wise than the Israeli people who had elected their own government. Why did they there's, think there's that? Well, I, well I, think, I, I think that this is a, a, a malady that is uh, affecting the West as a whole. There's been a great deal of Americanization of Israeli uh, military and uh, life over the last uh, 50 years. Some of it is a great strategic failure that we can get into, but some of it is a mentality too, that, that when you talk to American military brass, and we have this problem right now too, there's this feeling that, well, you know, the Americans can go ahead and elect who they want as long as they don't change policy. Uh, because we know the policy is brilliant, or we know that we're, we know what we're doing. And these yahoos out in Kansas or Missouri, I mean, God, how could they tell us how to operate in this sophisticated, refined world of international diplomacy and military strategy? So there, there is, a, in essence, an arrogant aristocracy emerging. And I think you have seen that mentality beginning to affect the Israeli security establishment, which unfortunately, through historical uh, accident or historical reasons, has had an, uh, an undue weight in Israeli military planning. Strategy is not a military affair, but they've sort of defined it as such. So I, I think the military establishment in Israel, first of all, feels its importance correctly, feels its importance is so much more than, say, would the military establishment of Luxembourg be. Uh, but, but at the same time, they've accepted this aristocratic arrogance that affects bureaucracies throughout the West these days that, you know, God help us if we ever listen to the people who elect us. You know, I think that I, I I agree with your assessment, but I was actually trying to push you in a different direction. Which you, yeah, which, sure. which, which you went off on your own, which is just fine, because I, I think I think the point is well taken. And I think you're right. I think that throughout the, the free world, we're having a crisis of uh, of ruling classes that, you know, in a large part are unelected bureaucrats and civil servants who have anointed themselves the 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 leaders uh, that get to decide what powers uh, politicians should be allowed to wield and which powers must be kept away from them. But it, it, the the reason the, the the place I was hoping that you would take the question and and where I'm going to force us to go right now is the issue of of the Israeli security establishment's uh, dependence on the United States and their refusal 
it's like it you know it does not compute it does not compute kind of thing that they it can it, it blows their mind the concept that in this very existential threat to Israel um the United States cannot be trusted because throughout the years there was a sense that uh you know when it when it comes to this sort of level danger that this is the whole point of having an alliance with the United States of America with a global superpower that it, it's much easier as a practical matter for the United States to handle the uh, uh, kinetic operation against Iran's nuclear installations than it is for the United than it is for the tiny state of Israel to do so. Uh, from every single perspective, first and foremost, from the perspective of power projection and the number of jets you have at your disposal. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, and, and so I think that the sense all along was whatever the United States says that they're going to do, we're going to make the best of it. And we're going to believe them when they tell us that they are committed to preventing Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons, which is what every administration uh, from the beginning of this, so going back to the Clinton administration and Yitzhak Rabin, uh, had said uh, in the face of Iran's ballistic missile development, and then in, in the face of the, the exposure uh, the revelation of their illicit nuclear uh, weapons program back in 2003. Well, they should, you know, the first thing is that the, the cheapening of language. Uh, I can't tell you how much in the Clinton administration onward, we used to hear these uh, diplomatic statements. It, it is unacceptable that, whether it's something Pakistan did, Japan did, whatever, it is unacceptable. We will not reconcile with it, and we, we accept it and we reconcile with it. There's, there's in the West a, a tendency to talk tough and do nothing that is set in. But I think on the Israeli side, there's two things that are, it's one, they cannot rely on the United States. Two, they should not rely on the United States. They cannot is simply the United States has shown itself, unfortunately, and I say this as an American, uh, not reliable. We have let allies be destroyed. We treat our friends worse than our. I mean, at the end of the Cold War, it was a fire sale to our enemies, whether it was Syria or whether it was uh, the PLO. Instead of take, instead of siding with the side that sided with us in the Cold War, Israel. We decided to sell out our friends to make friends with our new with our old enemies. So it didn't pay to be our enemy. I mean, it didn't pay to be our friend. Well, to be our enemy. So the United States has a has a history of being uh, in in the last forty years or so being unreliable, if not even uh, rather difficult for its enemies, for its friends. It it. it there was an expression that came out of Vietnam, it's dangerous to be our enemy, it's fatal to be our ally. Uh, and, and, you know, Israelis should understand that. The second thing that's important is that um, they, they shouldn't, they shouldn't want to do this. Israel was most popular. There, there's this idea that sets in in the Israeli military establishment that giving in to the Americans, giving in to the United States, builds the support you need for the rainy day for the 73 war when you need the airlift or something like that. And I think what they miss is that Israel in the American imagination, popular imagination, is a little form of the United States. One of the reasons why Israel was so unbelievably popular in the 70s was because Israel did what we Americans wished we would do. That they just get up, got up on their own, flew to Entebbe and freed their hostages something that we found, you know, catastrophically embarrassing in Desert 
one in Iran with our hostages. So in many ways, Israel's most uh, important uh, branding in the American psyche is the successful mini version of the United States. So when Israel sits there and says, well, you know, the Americans can do this better, so we should let them do it. After all, their interest too, or maybe more their interest in Israel's. So whatever the Israeli establishment says, they don't understand that they're actually undermining the very essence of why Americans are so pro-Israeli. If Israel acted on its own, it would, it, yes, militarily, in terms of tactics and equipment, America has an unbelievable amount of equipment it can bring to bear on any problem compared to Israel, if it brought it to bear, and it won't. So it's it's whatever Israel has against the option of nothing, not the option of Israel against the massive option of the United States. But second of all, even if it's a lesser attack, the psychological impact on the United States of Israel taking care of itself really drives home the point for Americans, and precisely at this point when Americans have no self-confidence, drives home the point of why Israel is so important to America and the American psyche. Instead, if Israel relies on the United States, it positions itself as the ultimate strategic albatross. Oh, well, we Americans have to deal with our own problems. We have so many, but now we have to go deal with the Israelis' problem. Why don't they deal with it? You know, and you will hear that on the American street. It will undermine the support for Israel and make it exactly what Israel's enemies keep saying it is, a strategic you know, albatross for the United States. You wrote, you wrote, a, you wrote an article that I cited in, in my latest uh, column in, in Israel um, in, uh, in August of 2020. Uh, you called it um, Reflections on the U.S.'s Guarantee of a Qualitative Military Edge to Israel. Um, and and it's uh, it's an important article because it it uh, in it you trace the development of U.S. military support for Israel and what that did to the excuse me to the Israeli security establishment that it it sort of developed this mentality of welfare queen among the Israeli General Corps and <clears throat> so I just I don't want to go through the whole history um, I'm going to put a link. To your article on uh, at, on my website uh, when I post this discussion uh, on it, but um, you know we don't have to go through the whole thing. Basically, it started with the with the with the Phantom F four sales to Israel in nineteen in nineteen seventy. But um, talk about you know what what this did to Israel, the the weapons and what the Faustian bargain that Israel made when it agreed. Uh, to to receive U.S. Uh, military assistance in, in a very significant way. Right. Well, you know, I would encourage all your, all your viewers to go back and want to study or just, just look up why Ezra Weizmann left the Israeli government uh, in 1970. Uh, it, there was a grand coalition, American arms sale. There, there was this, this Faustian bargain, as you put it, where the United States had a peace process called the Rogers Plan. It came at the end of the uh, War of Attrition. And the Israelis, the War of Attrition, I don't think is understood even that well by Israelis today. It was a constant. It was started by the Egyptians, and it's a war they chose to have. 
but it's a, ch- a war that Israel used strategically to keep the strate- the bulk of the Egyptian forces uh, far back, 40 kilometers back. And it, this was the, back in 1970, They kept the bulk of the Egyptian army back, and that gave Israel 72 hours warning of physical movement of forces to trigger a war. So that buffer was critical. And, and the moment the ceasefire was signed, the Egyptians moved everything forward. And the Israelis said, well, then we're going to start attacking again because we need that buffer. We need that 72 hours of warning, which, by the way, was always a physical warning. It wasn't supposed to be originally having some deep spy in the Egyptian government. The Americans said, no, 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 we have this peace process. That's more important. And the Israeli government basically said, well, we have to do this. And at that point, the Americans came up with the formula, not later, of the qualitative military edge, which is we will guarantee your military superiority to such an extent that you can afford to absorb this first strike on fundamentally disadvantageous strategic uh, lines uh, with with the with the Egyptians fully mobilized on your border and Israel Israel being demobilized as it has to be uh, on a, on a normal day uh, 500 miles from its from, from its population centers so mm-hmm. inherently the Israelis put themselves in a very dangerous position but the Americans said look we're going to give you so much qualitative equipment that it doesn't matter you're going to beat them in five minutes anyway. The Phantom, the F-4 aircraft can't be shot down. Um, you know, it's, so that was the moment at which the Israeli military elites made a decision that haunts them to this day, which is a high-tech piece of equipment is worth 10th and, and the American, quote, strategic umbrella is worth far more than independence of action and strategic maneuver. And it was over that point that Ezra Weizmann resigned. He said, if we had thought that way in 1948, waiting for this or that piece of equipment or this or that piece of international support, we would never have come into existence. And we wouldn't have stayed in existence in the 50s. And we would have never won the 67 war. So essentially, where, where the left always says, oh, occupation, and ever since 67, Israel hasn't won a war. The truth is, this is the reason why, is because they're relying exclusively on technology rather than good old strategy, deployment, strategic maneuver, and independence to defend themselves. And it's part of a larger strategic vision that you see in the Israeli military that's borrowed from the United States in many ways. It wasn't even working in the United States. It hasn't worked in the United States. But this is the this is the origin of what's gone wrong. And when you look at the Hamas war last summer or this summer, uh, you see it's still playing out. Well, we need more. We need more of these rockets uh, to load into our uh, into our Iron Dome batteries. My God, the United States, they have to they have to resupply us. They have to give us more money so that we can resupply our Iron Dome. And uh, well, to do that, we're going to have to give in to the Americans on this and that, maybe the embassy, uh, the consulate, blah, blah, blah. The problem is the first question Israel has to ask is why are they tolerating 5000 missiles on their cities? Is this really a strategic victory? Um, and, and again, it's this belief that technology can overcome fundamentals of military uh, conflict, and it cannot. 
And as a result, Israel, both diplomatically and strategically, has been on the defensive ever since August 1970. You know, it's it's so it's so distressing what you're talking about, and I think it's so important for us to really be raising this subject and discussing it as much as possible. You know, here in Israel, we have a retired general who was the arms buns, um, like the the uh, controller of the military for. For for ten years, he he left a couple of years ago. His name is Yitzhak Brik, and he's been warning for the past couple of years that Israel's ground forces are critically are critically damaged. That we don't have the stores that we need. We don't have the spare parts. We don't have the uh, NCOs that are capable of of replacing. Uh, or or uh, fixing, repairing uh, uh, broken down vehicles in times of war. Our supply lines uh, will last for 24 hours. I mean, really, really, really serious problems in our logistical trains, and and in and and in our capacity to be combat ready. Um, and uh, and when you add to that the 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 atrophied. Uh, strategic conception or conceptual framework that uh, the Israeli security establishment has been operating under. And really, it's never been justified since 1970 that we can, that it's better to have the United States supporting us than for us to be going out on our own and defeating our enemies. Uh, then we're really uh, faced with a uh, a critical threat uh, level that I, I'm, you know, that that's very difficult as a practical matter uh, to to think about how to deal with. I mean, I have, you know, I, I think that the way to handle Iran is to not think about it um, so much as a military question, if we, do, if we do in fact lack the means to do something about it, but rather as a political issue for the Iranians to deal with, and that Israel's greatest ally in fighting the Iranian nuclear weapons program is the Iranian people who want to overthrow the yeah. government that's pursuing them, I mean, you know, this are both of our dear friend, uh, uh, Michael Adin, who's really been the most outspoken advocate for overthrowing the regime as a means to really cut off the head of the Iranian snake. If you if you got rid of the regime, then you cripple all of its terror proxies from Hezbollah to the Shiite militias in Iraq to the Assad regime in Syria, although now he's also supported by Russia. But you certainly critically weaken him to Hamas, to Islamic Jihad. Uh, to the Houthis in Yemen, and and many more, and and you do that, you also have an Iranian people that will probably not have the same desire to wipe Israel off the map as these as these uh, theocratic uh, jihadists who rule the country. Um, and I think that Israel would be well placed to assist the Iranians uh, in doing what they've been trying to do uh, for many many years. But be that as it may. You know, we're when you look at when I read uh, Yoav Moore's article on Tuesday, uh, the thing that was so alarming and so striking is that even in the face of the Biden administration's open betrayal of Israel, open siding with Iran, open willingness, you know, all but stated and practically stated willingness for to see Iran, to shepherd Iran into the nuclear weapons uh, the, the nuclear club, this club of nuclear armed states, uh, you still have this uh, concept. Well, if we work with the Americans, we're going to be able to uh, stem the tide. We're going to be able to keep things back and, and have time to do something else. Um, and I think that that in many ways is, is even more alarming because it shows a stasis 
it shows a paralysis on the part of Israel at a moment when we we need to be able to wake up and smell the coffee. Yeah, you know, I, I remember going to the early days of the Herzliya conference. And there, which there is a be, primary just for people who don't know, because yeah. I I haven't gone to the Herzliya conference in years because who cares? But this is where all of Israel's security yeah. establishment uh, goes and talks about how smart they are. And I would hear these brilliant lectures analyzing the PLO's behavior, the Palestinian Authority's behavior, going point by point in a way that nobody else can, describing how they are building for a conflict and are not interested in peace. And then comes the conclusion. And the conclusion is, which is why we have to try harder to make peace. There's a complete disconnect between the knowledge and the conclusion. And it's as if they don't want to deal with the reality they have to deal with. And I think that, in a collective way, represents Israel's security establishment. By the way, you mentioned the Iranian people and overthrowing the regime. This is why it's so dangerous if the Israeli government gives in and and, and talks about a tougher JCPOA or any JCPOA. The reason for it is you're an Iranian. You hate your regime. You want to overthrow the regime. You're sitting at home and thinking, there may be demonstrations tomorrow. Do I go out? And the first thing that occurs to you is, well, wait a second. The Americans and the Israelis, even the Israelis now have said, we're too afraid to take on the Iranian regime. We want to use the violence on the streets in Iran. We want to use the threat of pressure on the Iranian regime as a pawn in the bargaining chip to get a better nuclear deal. But we're not really going to use it to overthrow the regime. So the moment that the Israelis and the Americans give in and and say the objective is the JCPOA, you are signaling to the Iranian people that they are nothing more than a pawn that will be discarded and sold out at the end of this. And they're not going to stick their necks out for that. So if you really want the Iranian regime to come down, you got to make it clear, the Israelis at least have to make it clear better if the Americans do too. And this, you know, I was part of the Trump administration too. And I, this was my big frustration. I don't think you can have a bifurcated policy of negotiating a better deal on one side and really solving the problem. And I think by this point, it should be clear, the only real solution to the problem is the termination of the uh, Ayatollah's regime. You can't do both. The moment you signal you're out for a better deal, you undercut the dynamics that could lead to a regime collapse. And I, and I think that's that's just a, a, an awful thing that Israel would do if it genuinely publicly says it's out for a better JCPOA, even oh, if it's, it's a cynical. Said that. Yeah, it yeah, is. And, were- and, and it's, it's too clever by half. I mean, you know, I remember the grand bargain that the EU3 put forward. You know, it was the Israelis who started it. They thought, you know, let's let's offer Iran a grand bargain that we know they have to refuse. And what that will do is it will clear out all the diplomatic underbrush and everybody will understand perfectly that Iran is not serious about a deal. And what it did was in September 2004, we were at the edge of bring or 2002 and three. We were at the edge of bringing Iran to referral to the Security Council for breach of the IAEA, and it was that grand bargain that bought them another three years. Which then, but Paris, these diplomatic attempts to clear out the diplomatic underbrush and prove to everybody that Iran isn't serious. Hamavinyavin, you know, if if people don't understand that by now. They will never understand it, even the Russians and the Chinese. It was very clear. They understood 
the incentives for them to take the right position wasn't weren't there. But they understood. You could prove to them a thousand times more that Iran wanted a bomb and was pursuing it. It wouldn't matter. They until you made it costly for them. So again, we're we're here at the same point with with this. The Israelis are in danger of committing another too clever by half sabotage of themselves. Yeah, I I think what you're saying is so critical for people to understand. I mean, you cannot win by losing. You cannot, you know, you cannot say, uh, you know, you you cannot operate in this kind of environment where the risks are so high with a sort of wink, wink attitude about things. Oh, we're going to do this, but we don't really mean it or whatever, because what you're really doing, I mean, the, the concept as well, I think it's important to note of returning to the JCPOA, what's in it for Iran. The only thing that's in it for Iran is to end the U.S. economic sanctions on Iran. And again, we said, you know, they're not, the the Biden administration is not enforcing them in any significant way, but still they're there and it's causing uh, harm to the Iranian economy. And um, the one thing, you know, internally that, that, the Trump administration did that. And by the way, Congress did and and Obama was forced to acquiesce against his will as well uh, uh, before the JCPOA came into uh, into force in 2015 was his very, very harsh economic sanctions that were bringing the regime to its knees economically and cutting back its ability to finance the wars that its proxies are carrying out for it against regional enemies from uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel and 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 beyond, and so um, you know these were these were important steps that were being taken. Were they sufficient? No, of course not. But they were important, and they also inspired the Iranian people to think that the international community, such as it is the United States, Israel, whomever, was going to rally and support them if they tried to overthrow the regime. And and I think you know we should segue here to the second discussion that we wanted to have, which is about um, Peter Beinart and, and the Israeli government. Um, because I think it, you know, one of the things that we saw that, that was so amazing was that in 2000, Ehud Barak, uh, his coalition government had, had collapsed. He, he, he had uh, lost a no confidence vote, but it was only, like 59 against 58 or out of Israel's 120 members of Knesset. And since it wasn't a 61 vote majority, uh, he he wasn't ousted from power. This was on the eve of the Camp David summit that was ostensibly supposed to bring about a final peace between Israel and the the PLO. Um, And when Arafat rejected the offer of statehood, the division of Jerusalem, the expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Jews from their homes and the transfer of their communities in Judea and Samaria and Gaza to the PLO. He he rejected all of that. And then he ordered his forces to prepare for uh, a war against Israel, which he launched on in September of 2000. Uh, when all of this happened, Ehud Barak gave this statement where he said, I removed the mask. I pulled the mask off of Arafat's face. Now everybody is going to see what it is that we're dealing with, that he's still a terrorist, that the whole agreement was made in bad faith. And instead, and, and he sat back and waited for the Europeans to suddenly abandon their longstanding support for the PLO in its war against Israel. He expected for the Clinton administration to abandon the Oslo process and stand with Israel, you know, presumably. And of course, in the event, none of that happened. All of them not only stood by the PLO, but uh, anti-Israel forces throughout Europe and increasingly 
uh, in the United States began uh, rejecting Israel's right to exist and you know, constantly escalating fashion of hostility against the Jewish state. You had mass, uh, uh, mass demonstrations in Paris and London, uh, in Berkeley and San Francisco against Israel, uh, while Israelis were being uh, murdered in suicide bombings in the streets of the of, throughout the country. And, and this was a really shocking lesson, right? Because, because the idea that you could remove the mask and now they would know, and now it would be undeniable. And now they would see that the PLO remains at has always what it always was, which is a terrorist organization, that its strategic goal and its operational goal, its strategic goal is Israel's annihilation. Its operational goal is to delegitimize Israel's right to exist in the international arena and to kill as many Jews as possible in terrorist attacks in Israel. And um and and it was this idea, but but really. It was, ridic- it was ridiculous because just as everybody knows that Iran wants nuclear weapons, they say that they want nuclear weapons, just as everybody knows that Iran wants to annihilate Israel and wants to destroy the United States. And they, and they, they, they live in denial about it, not because they don't know, but because they don't care. Or maybe some exactly. of them even support it. And it was exactly. the same thing with the PLO. They, it isn't that people didn't know that Yasser Arafat was the architect of modern terrorism and that he remained a terrorist and that he was a mass murderer. And so were all of his lieutenants who were wearing suits and pretending to be peacemakers. They knew and they wanted them to succeed. I mean, that that was the thing that nobody wanted to countenance. That was the thing that nobody wanted to deal with. And still today, they don't want to deal with it. But that that's the truth. Something happened with Western elites in the 60s and 70s. You know, up until then, strategy, and by that I mean even the foreign policy of a nation, was really about preserving and winning for the, the, the interests of that nation. Uh, some, somewhere along the line, the concept of victory gave way to the concept of conflict resolution and this international security rather than national security that nations pr- pr- pursue their own uh, security now has become sort of this amorphous international security structure. And they buy into it. And, and, and as a result, you have all these arms control paradigm type situations, which then believe you can use and modulate arms control in one form or another in order to encourage moderates and create these communities of leaders who see mutual interests in, in moderation. And then that overpowers ideas, ideologies, everything. And you can create a world where conflict is essentially removed. The Oslo process was the translation of the arms control paradigm, which had failed, by the way, over and over again, into the diplomatic sphere in the Arab-Israeli. And it also embodies the values of the elites of Europe and the United States. The whole value system has been based around this conflict resolution ideology. So when Oslo fails and when arms control agreements fail, it threatens the very value-based foundations of the entire elites of the West. So they can't accept this. They they would accept the collapse of their position. Their entire ideological world over 50, 60 years collapses. So they would prefer to just ignore reality. It's, It's like, you know, we've all been in a meeting 
where everybody's talking about something and, and then you want to raise a question and it sort of shifts the paradigm and you say, yeah, but you know, we're talking about making typewriters better, but we got this computer guy out here who's beginning to develop computers going to make everything irrelevant. And everybody in the room can't digest that point. So they sort of just smile and they continue their meeting talking about how to improve typewriters. That's exactly where we are strategically with Europe, the United States, they don't want to accept the reality because it's such a profound collapse of the elites. Instead, it's becoming increasingly obvious, though, on the ground, and they take out the wrath evermore on the symbol of why their paradigm is collapsing, Israel. So there's a hostility building, not just an ignoring of reality, but a hostility. If Israel would just go away, we could continue happily with our false paradigm. So I, I think there's something much more dangerous emerging, and it's affecting the intellectual communities of the West profoundly at this point, because their worldview has been tested. Oslo was a laboratory perfect application of con conflict resolution theory, and it, in a laboratory perfect way, failed. Um, every single possible control factor had been set in a positive direction to make this experiment succeed, and it still failed which meant the very paradigm failed of land for peace and so forth. So again, to me, I think the essence is that um, the elites in the West are, are and, and Israel has, has bought into this acceptance and wanting to be accepted. And this, you get into the Peter Beinart thing, the price now for being invited to cocktail parties, the price for being accepted into this diplomatic community uh, is to buy into their paradigm. That's the role that Peter Beinart plays. That's the role Israeli leftists play. It allows them to continue their paradigm. That so let me just let me just back up was, for a second. Oh, let, yeah. let me just back up for a second, um, because the thing about Peter Beinart that's important is that, you know, Peter Beinart uh, last summer wrote an article that The New York Times published saying that he no longer believes that Israel has a right to exist. He had, you know, he began his life as a neoconservative. He was the uh, editor of the New Republic. And then after uh, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, at some point, he began to shift very quickly from uh, the, sort of the center-right uh uh, uh, I don't know what you would neoconservative, you know, liberal interventionism, whatever. And he moved to the he moved to the far left, and the the way that he did it, the his 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 cause celebre was to become anti-Israel, and that was really how he made him a name for himself. As the left in the United States progressively became more and more hostile to Israel, uh, Peter Beinart presented himself as a go-to guy. Uh, for anti-Israel activists in the United States, that he would give them a hechsher, that he would give them a Jewish good good housekeeping seal of approval, uh, say that they aren't anti-Semitic when in fact they they are. And so he was going this way. He was playing a little bit. He was flirting with the BDS movement, the BDS campaigns, uh, which are anti-Semitic, uh, to to boycott and ostracize uh, Israel and its supporters in the United States. And so he was sort of playing with them for a while, and then he embraced them. And then uh, last year, he said that he no longer accepts Israel's right to exist. And last and this and this week, um, Peter Beinart put out an email to his followers saying that he was going to be holding this uh, symposium on Zoom, and that amazingly, uh, Israel's uh, minister of diaspora affairs, Nachman Shai, 
um, was going to be participating. And he himself was pretty amazed that given the fact that he supports Israel's annihilation, that a uh, a member of the Israeli government was going to uh, participate in a forum that he's hosting. And and I and I did a and I tweeted up a storm about this. Uh, because I think, you know, aside from the fact uh, that uh, so th- this is sort of a new thing that we've seen with this very radical government that now leads Israel. Um, Israel has has never really known how to deal with progressive liberal uh, Jews in the United States that are increasingly attenuating their support for Israel. Um, but we've always known uh, not to uh, help the Norman Finkelsteins of the world, not to help people who, not to legitimize American Jews who who support Israel's enemies, who support Israel's annihilation. And so this is the first time that you see um, the Israeli government in the form of Nachman Shai, the diaspora affairs minister, uh, actually empowering uh, anti-Israel American Jews. And and to my mind, this, uh, this actually... Um, this constitutes a danger for the American Jewish community. Uh, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that and, and who is yeah. Peter Beinart and what what he what what he represents, but also, you know, how this is likely to negatively impact the American Jewish community. Yeah, you know, you and you and my wife agree about something very critical here, which is that there's been a move by by Jews on the left here to essentially barter their Jewish credentials for acceptance in the progressive left, that it's a kind of a careerist or, or slash survivalist mode. Uh, Peter Beinart, as a person, I, I think, uh, unfortunately, and I, I say this with a great deal of sadness, I think Peter Beinart has uh, intentionally cut out a career for himself, playing a role. Being a Jewish neoconservative who supported the Iraq war wasn't going to make him stand out. Uh, And he was never going to be uh, a a real large scale household type name that way. And that was his aspirations. And I think he's found a niche for himself that puts him on everybody's lips, including our lips. Uh, so I think there is a certain careerist element here, and I, I hate to be so ad hominem like that, but after so many years of knowing him and talking with him at times and and and, and seeing him, I, I can't but come to that conclusion. However, why is he getting traction to be who he is? And I think therein you 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 get into a uh, the larger scale uh, bartering of Judaism. There there is a, a breakdown in Jewish identity in the in the United States Jewish community. It is, it is uh, you know, there's many articles and so forth about how essentially it's become the religion, the, the liberalism or the progressivism is becoming the religion of young young leftist American Jews rather than Judaism itself and so forth. Well, the problem is the progressives won't have you unless you play a role for them. And so you need to play that role. And that role is what Peter Beinart fills. And it's the role that now more and more progressive Jews want to do, whether it's the Jewish Voice for Peace, J Street, et cetera. What is, again, astounding to me isn't surprising. Uh, it, I'm not surprised that American Jews, about 40 percent or whatever the number is, is are doing that. Uh, I, I, my son is in a Jewish school, even a, even in a Jewish school teaching Jewish values a good half of the school, I, I don't think are going to marry Jewish and probably not going to have Jewish kids. 
I mean, it's the end of the road in many ways for the Jewish community on that side. I'm not surprised by that. I'm surprised by Israel sanctioning that. I'm surprised by the fact that J Street, by other Israelis, maybe not Nachman Shai, but other Israelis have been playing footsie with J Street. They've been playing. Oh, no, no, Nachman they, Shai, half of, half of the members of this government were at yeah. J Street conferences repeatedly yeah. in recent years. I mean, this is the most radical government. But I actually, I just want to stop you before you go into J Street, because I agree with you, but Peter Beinart is, is important specifically because- yes. He he his job in the world, his position in the world involves being a fig leaf, enabling, legitimizing anti-Semites and anti-Semitism yes. in the United States. And so when to my mind, when the Israeli government legitimizes him, they're endangering American Jews because yes. they're in they're they're giving a green light to a man who green lights. Uh, uh, anti-Semites, and this is at a time when you're getting, particularly from the left, you're getting politically supported uh, anti-Semitic violence waged against the American Jewish community in a way that we really haven't seen uh, since before the, the Second World War. Well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to mince words, and I know this is probably not very political to say, but the, the purpose of progressives, non-Jewish progressives, Antifa, others, is to destroy the Jewish people. It isn't the only purpose. Their purpose is to destroy the West, but they know the history of Israel. The history of the Jewish people is intertwined with the history of the West. Whether we like it or not, America is a Judeo-Christian culture. It is Rome and Jerusalem. They know without Jerusalem, the whole thing comes down. So they need to destroy the Judeo-Christian core. And you can destroy Christianity, but the problem is the Jews are still pesky and are still there and keep resurfacing. You know, people have tried. It didn't work. And they realize the progressives now realize there's only one way to truly destroy the Jews. That's from within. And that's the role Peter Beinart plays. If you want to destroy the West truly, you can't just burn down its statues and erase its history. You have to erase the physical manifestation of where it comes from, the Judeo-Christian core. And to do that, you have to erase the Jewish people, the Jewish people, not just Israel. And that is the role that they're playing. When you look at what Peter Beinart says, he's not he's erasing he's erasing Judaism, not only since 1948 in Israel. He is erasing Judaism before before Yavne, before before the destruction of the uh, at the time of the destruction of the temple, the entirety of Judaism before that, which is the foundation for the existence of Judaism that we know we don't say next year in Jerusalem for nothing. We don't live uh, constantly celebrating or is not celebrating, but marking Tisha B'Av and so forth. Our history before the destruction of the temple is the foundation upon which Judaism exists. Right. And yes, we accrued a lot of other wisdoms, but we don't exist without that. And yeah. he, he knows that. And the anti-Semites know that. So if you erase the Jewish connection to the land of Israel and you erase the 2000 years of Jewish history that preceded the temple's destruction, finally, finally, you can erase the West. You can destroy the West. And that's what they're after. And Peter Beinart is stepped right into that because you cannot destroy Judaism from without. You have to destroy it from within. And he's serving that role. I hate to be that harsh, but that's what's going on. 
No, I think you're right. And I think it also, you know, it also talks, it, it also speaks to the incredible perniciousness of the PLO, right? I mean, because everybody's everybody's favorite terrorists, everybody's favorite terrorists, I'm just going to start, like, my microphone fell onto the floor from my ear. So I'm just going to, I mean, my earpiece. Anyway, the PLO, Fatah, which is the largest faction of the PLO, and was founded uh, by Yasser Arafat and a couple of other guys in 1958 in, when they were students in Qatar. Okay, and so the Fatah, the Fatah Covenant later became the PLO Covenant, or much of it was transposed into the PLO Covenant, which was written in 1964. Mind everybody who's not paying attention, this is all before the Six-Day War. And the, the most sort of, the, I think the key concept in their founding documents, and still today in the way that it's played out by Mahmoud Abbas, the head of Fatah, the head of the PLO, the head of the Palestinian Authority, is this denial of Jewish history, of the existence of Jewish history, of the existence of the Jewish people, of the existence of Jewish history in the land of Israel, and millennial ties, 4,000-year right, ties doctor, of the Jews. To his doctorate was uh, denial of the Holocaust, even. Right. So, his, but, but I'm saying specifically about erasing Jewish history, co-opting. They talk about, you know, the left likes to talk about cultural uh, co-optation, right? That, that, that uh, people who who like uh, yeah. reggae are co-opting uh, black culture from from the Caribbean and so on and so forth. The the Palestinian narrative, the Palestinian national identity, such as it is, it's just wholesale theft, co-optation of Jewish history, uh, and transferring it to a people that didn't exist the day before yesterday, and saying this is their history. Right. This is why Mahmoud Abbas is always saying that the Palestinians are the Canaanites, the Palestinians are the Jebusites, the Palestinians are the Hittites. So that there are all of these peoples from 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 the Hebrew Bible, um, and he's saying, and and at the same time, he's saying that there were never Jews, or the Jews such as they were uh, were Muslims, which is Islamic, or he's saying that you know they all disappeared, they all became whatever it is that the Palestinians are, and that they have no relationship whatsoever to the Jews uh, who live today and who have lived in, in, in modern times and in recorded history. So this is their concept. Their entire concept is cultural co-optation, theft of Jewish history, transferring, you know, projecting Jewish history onto the Arabs, turning themselves into the Jews, and then Israel into the Nazis, and uh, and and that's the whole transposition of truth, of of history, of fact, of archaeology, of everything, a belief of the Bible uh, that stands at the core of all of the political war against Israel. That's now, uh, you know, gone. Now it's the dominating narrative on, on the left in the United States and the Democrat Party. But one has to ask, where did distraction come from? This, you know, we're talking about here, historicide, archaeologicide, uh, and cultural genocide. That's what they're doing. Where right. did this come from? It came from Oslo. It came from Oslo because- Well, it predated you, Oslo. Well, it predated Oslo in the form of the PLO. But the moment that Israel recognized the PLO, it reopened the questions of 1948. Before that, it was the questions of 1967. <clears throat> what do you do about these territories that Israel captured in 1967? And that's a practical question with 20,000 different possible solutions. You wrote a book about one of those solutions, my preferred way too, but there are various ways to discuss this. 
But once you brought in the PLO, that organization was established, as you put it, in 64 in Qatar, not in Ramallah. It was established to address the questions of 1948. So the moment that the Israelis brought the PLO into the process, and it was only the Israelis, it wasn't the Americans, they were surprised. Israel itself reopened the questions of 48. And that's a question that ends with one of two answers. Either Israel survives or the PL, or the Arabs survive in Israel and Palestine. So it, it, the moment Israel did that, it set itself up for failure and delegitimized itself. And everything flows from that, that if it is true that Israel occupies uh, Palestine, because obviously the PLO must represent a genuine national interest if you recognize it. Well, then half a crime is still a crime. I mean, even if you give up the whole West Bank, it's still Palestinian. The whole idea that there are two peoples that own this land legitimately is at the core of what has been the delegitimization of Israel, except it's easy then to deny the Jews. They're, they're because ah, they came from Europe or wherever else they came from. They weren't here in 48, which is a lie. Uh, and, and the historical records also erased of who lived where, when, what, and when. But at the end of the day, this is this was allowed by Israel to, again, to try to curry favor with Western elites, to demask the problem, the grand gesture, to clear the diplomatic underbrush and make Israel once again popular. Again, another catastrophic failure of Israel's elites to understand the dynamics of their own legitimacy. Um, so that's like, where you know, we're not we're not going to we're not going to solve this problem. But I think it's really important to raise them. Uh, you know, we Netanyahu, uh, you know, he said today he gave a speech and he said this. Uh, it may take us three months, it may take us three and a half years to take down this government. I'm not going to attack it on absolutely everything it does. Um, but, you know, I can't sleep at night because of what they're doing on Iran. And they wanting yeah. they're them legitimize the fact that Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid and all of the rest of them are legitimizing the the Iranian nuclear deal from 2015 is a strategic threat to Israel. And he's right. Yeah. And I think it's along the same lines. It's that same kind of defeatist thinking that brought the same uh, corrupt, stupid Israeli elites uh, to believe that it would the best thing to do would be to give the PLO a chance and then they would prove that they were terrorists and we wouldn't, you know, we would remove the mask. And all of the Europeans who had been supporting them, knowing full well who they were since at least 1973, were going to change their mind when, of course, that was that was just self-delusion and it's self-delusion yeah. in this case as well. And it's self-delusion that all goes back, I think, you know, to what you pointed to in your paper, and I'll also link the article that you wrote about Beinart uh, a year ago uh, on my website for people to read the background to. Um, but that they that that you know we're making a mistake because we believe that the Americans are the are the are are the do ex, ex machina, you know, that's going to come yeah. down in Act Three and save the day. And that's not going to happen. Israel. Uh, or should we, it happen? Or should no, it happen? we established this country, you know, because we wanted to restore our position as Correct. Jews, as actors on the stage of histories and as masters of our fate. And the minute that Israel moved and transferred 
the mastery over whether we're allowed to win wars, whether we can win wars, whether we can defeat our enemies, whether we should defeat our enemies into somebody else's hands, even wonderful people, even our very close friends in the United States, it's bad for them, but it's disastrous for us. And even at this late date, you know, we have to stop this because we have to get off this train. It's not going in the right direction. It will never go in the right direction. And, and it's bad on every level. And we're seeing it playing out now on every level. And so I, I thank you, you know, <laughs> for coming here and, you know, and joining me in this. Sure. Then no, I want I, us to do it again soon, maybe next week, absolutely. you know? <laughs> I love Kate. Love <laughs> And you guys should all pay attention as well to to our work together at the Center for Security Policy in Washington. I think I think we're the best think tank around. What do you think? I think we are. Absolutely. That and Kohelet. We're, you know, we all like. OK, the two places that you're affiliated with. OK, no problem. That's right. OK. Yeah. So I, I think but I definitely the Center for Security Policy. I mean, Washington is a problem right now. If you come to Washington, you see. We're, we're losing our way to Center for Security Policies, one of the true stalwarts, trying to keep the line, trying to keep America what it once was and what it should still be. And God willing, what it will be and, and helping us uh, in Israel to to push forward and to maintain and to secure and to expand our independence of action and and security. So thanks so much. And we'll see you hopefully uh, very, very soon back on the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour. Thank you for watching, guys. Uh, subscribe if you haven't already. Subscribe all of your friends and nodding acquaintances just, you know, for fun. And let's get this word out there, because the more people who know the truth, uh, the stronger we'll all be in our fight, uh, in our fight to fight the good fight for us and for everybody that's good in this world and all that's wonderful and, and white and sweet and blissful. Anyway, thanks so much, everybody. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.